Andrea, you needn't worry, my daughter's 44 today. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And this is in the New Living Translation. It's entitled, The Wedding at Cana. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby, there were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, and not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Amen. Continue with the same passage, verses 13 to 25. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip for some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. And going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. 
But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It's taken four to six years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the Scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was on each person's heart. Sorry about that. Um, if you are 11 to 14 years old, um, you can join me and Amelia uh, upstairs. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jordan, and thank you to the readers. That was great. Morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. And thank you, special thank you to Andrea and the band. That was just a wonderful time of worship this morning. I'm sure you'd all agree. And I don't know about you, but whenever we sing that lovely song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, it always takes me back um, to the time when we sang that and everyone was stuck at home back in 2020. I remember rightly, in lockdown. And it was amazing how even though we were just sharing that and getting that over our screens, there was this sense of just bringing the body of Christ here together. And you could, you could feel the love and you could feel the longing for fellowship that we were missing. I think we would, those of us that were around at that time would, would agree. And I was just thinking this morning when Jen said at the very beginning, you know, church is something really special. And it is, isn't it? It's amazing. And um, I really sense, I, I, I just know, I think, I think we probably all sense that, yes, in the words of that other song, waymaker, miracle worker, you know, God is moving in this place. And um, last week, I had a, a good friend of mine who comes and visits me quite regularly. Some of you may know her, Rose, from Liverpool. She made a very interesting comment to me after the service, which she's never made before. She just said, she said, there was something different. She said, there's really something new happening there. She said, there was a real buzz. And she said, it felt, she said, I know that the children were all up for the special uh, children's communion that we had which was lovely but she said it felt youthful <laughs> so I thought, whoa wonderful 
but she really noticed something. And, and I just think, you know, God wants us to really be, inwardly at least, on the edge of our seats because God is moving in this place. And um, as we will see in our passage this morning, he is a God of miracles. Amen? Amen. So the title for today's sermon, and a big thank you to Marcus, because you really can't get the staff. I took this to him literally. I'd forgotten about taking my um, uh, PowerPoint to him, and he got it literally just before the service started. So thank you very much, Marcus, for your grace with me. Um, The title for the sermon... You maybe can just see it at the bottom there of that slide. A party and a fight was chosen, I think, by Martin? Yes, yes. And it gives us a clue that this story is going to be um, a story of two halves. I think it's actually a story in three parts because of the extra kind of PS that we find at the end of the chapter. But what we have here is two wonderful accounts that are actually really quite easy to visualize because they're full of life and they're full of human interest. And they also give us an important insight into the character of Jesus, fully God and fully man, as he was then and as he is now in heaven. We see celebration and generosity in the first part. The second part, we see passion and anger. And we also see a level of mistrust in Jesus about human nature, and yet it's without cynicism. That is quite an act to follow. Let's take a closer look and see what this might mean for us today. So um, let's just see which way does this go. Yeah, good. So in the first 13 verses, we're really looking at Jesus, and as I've put it here, hospitality, Jesus here is almost like mine host, you know. It's amazing what happens. It's interesting that Jesus chose this for his first miracle. It wasn't a spectacular event. It wasn't a healing or a raising from the dead. It wasn't out in amongst the general public. It was probably a relatively quiet local wedding that he and his disciples had been invited to, maybe because of family relationships even. Mary was clearly quite strongly involved. And it would almost seem as though Jesus was reluctant to act in the first instance. In verse 4, um, verse 3, Jesus tell, uh, Jesus's mother tells him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. He knew that when he performed his first miracle... Wherever it took place, it would reveal his glory and thereby his divinity to a watching and awaiting world. Now, we notice Mary didn't try to tell Jesus what to do. She clearly felt, however, that he would know what to do. So she instructs the servants accordingly and very tactfully just withdraws into the background. What a lady! What a lady. We can learn an awful lot from Mary. And just a small fact here, which um, all you number crunchers might find interesting. Where it says the next day in verse 1, or in some of the translations, it actually translates it from the Greek as on the third day. This would have been a Tuesday because 
The Hebrew week began, begins on a Sunday, and apparently the third day was chosen as the wedding day in ancient Judaism because it's only on the third day of creation that God says it was good twice. Check it out in Genesis chapter 1. So the day was always considered twice blessed. The third day, of course, is also a picture of resurrection, glory, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And many commentators think that this first miracle of Jesus is a, res- is a revelation of going from death to resurrection life, our lives being changed from water into wine. Anyone up for that? Amen. <laughs> it's also a sign of God's grace under the new covenant. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I ha- actually hadn't until I was preparing for this message. Moses, who was the representative of the law, his first miracle actually was a plague, wasn't it? Because he turned water into blood. Again, you can check it out in Exodus 7, verse 19 onwards. And that spoke of judgment. But here, Jesus' first miracle speaks of grace. Because man's plans and preparations have failed, the wine of our own efforts, my own efforts, has run out, but Jesus turns our water into wine as an act of sheer love and grace. Jesus' response to Mary may sound a little harsh to our ears, but he was actually being polite and just gently reminding her that he had to do what the Father wanted him to do, not just what seemed socially correct and helpful um, at that moment. And this is the first time and place, actually, where John actually makes us aware of Jesus' heavenly timetable. He says, my time is not yet come. And this theme of divine timing will be developed further as we go through John's gospel. But somewhere along the line, Jesus must have got the go-ahead from his father to actually move and perform this first miracle. We were just talking about it earlier on with the young people upstairs, and um, one of them mentioned, if you've watched this episode in The Chosen, um, apparently Jesus actually has a moment in the film of it where he goes by himself and he actually lays his hands on the, on the pots, and I'm not sure if he touches the water, but he, he does something like that. Uh, there's another film, the Jesus film, where he simply just stands by the pots and it's just a moment of prayer, really. And then he tells the servants what to do. All we know is, is that he clearly heard from God the Father the go-ahead to do this at this time. And I think it's a lovely confirmation of God the Father, as well as Jesus' generosity, of his love, actually, of celebrating the good things of life. And, you know, Jesus is standing at the very start of God's plan for the salvation of the whole world, right? And yet he has the time and he has the practical love to step momentarily into the role of mine host and he sorts out the embarrassment of the wine. It's amazing, isn't it? I think that gives us a real insight 
into God's practical love for us. Now, each of these six stone water pots, um, as we read, they were filled with water for ceremonial washing, and they would have held somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons of water. It was a lot of liquid. And since six is the biblical number for man, mankind having been created on the sixth day, some think these six water pots represent man's method of helping others. Nothing but water. Whereas Jesus gives us the wine of the Holy Spirit, does he not? Filled with power and fruitfulness and joy. We don't know if all the water was turned into wine or only that that was drawn out for the guests. Have you ever thought about that? We don't know. We just know that whatever was served to the guests was absolutely the very best wine. But whatever the case was, these servants, they had to cooperate with Jesus. It must have been scary, don't you think? I think it's a little bit, you know, they must have been thinking, is he going to come through? What is he thinking of here? What is going to happen? This could go very badly wrong, you know. But they obey, and of course, as we know, Jesus does come through, as he always does. But they must have had some anxious moments. And I think, again, there's a parallel there for us, you know, when God calls us sometimes to take perhaps a much smaller, but for us, a big step of faith. And we think, is he going to come through? Is he really going to come through? And how many can testify, yes, he does, in spite of all our anxieties and, and fears. With the feeding of the 5,000, I've often thought of those disciples. They were the ones Jesus blessed, those few little loaves and the fishes, but they were the ones that had to carry them to the people. You know, they say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Well, the proof of the fish and the bread was in the eating. And Jesus, as we know, came through. Jesus is always, God is always on time. Have you noticed he's never early? Sometimes we wish he would be. I know I do. But he is always on time. And he's fully aware of the necessary calculations in any situation. He knows exactly what we need. And he always gives it to us with some extra on top as blessing. And we just see all of that happening here at Cana. In verse 11, we read, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This miracle did something for the disciples. It revealed Jesus' glory and it gave them a stronger foundation for their faith. They had to begin somewhere, didn't they? This was right at the very beginning of following Jesus. And although we know that miracles in themselves are insufficient evidence to declare that Jesus is the Son of God, they are a sign that was to have a cumulative effect as the disciples saw miracle after miracle after miracle. Just underlining what Jesus spoke in the months that followed. It can be the same for us, for you and for me. We base our faith, do we not, on God's word? But the outworking of what he tells us 
in our daily lives changes that word into a rock-solid foundation for all that is to come. And I just want to say here, you know, your testimony and mine is important, both for you and for others. It's unique to you and to me, and yet God will use it and bless it to encourage and change the lives of others around. So don't be shy to acknowledge God's working in your life, in the everyday circumstances, to share from your experiences with others when appropriate. Because we never know how much grace we're pouring out into others when we share from our own very simple everyday faith. We never know how God will just turn that water into wine. Amen? And I reckon there will be many, many testimonies of that here in this room. So we just see this is an amazing, amazing few days here. It says in verse 12, after the wedding, Jesus goes to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It all just seems very kind of normal. And then we come to this second part of the story. And this is where things really do start to turn from a party into a fight. Um, and it's maybe it's important to give some background, actually, to these events, because otherwise we might be tempted to think, well, if I'd been a stallholder there, I'd have been pretty mad with Jesus as well, just coming in and tipping over all my stuff and throwing over all the money and everything. Um, but First of all, we find actually in verse 17 that it says his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me, or it can be paraphrased like this, I am consumed with a fiery passion to keep your house pure. So it's a holy anger that Jesus demonstrates at this point, but I think it must have been quite frightening actually. <laughs> you know, you had this uh, rabbi who seems so calm and gentle and has everything under control, and all of a sudden, just raging mad. But it was controlled. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was a much-needed cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem because, you see, the priests had established and allowed a really lucrative business there were money changers there changing Roman money into Jewish currency so they could pay the temple tax and buy the animals needed for the sacrifices. And these animals were sold at inflated prices. They were supposed to be extra holy because they were being sold, you know, at the temple. So people weren't allowed to bring their own with them. They had to buy them there and pay these inflated prices. And maybe this so-called religious market, it might have started off as a matter of convenience initially for people coming from a long distance, but it had long ago changed and it had become a business and not a ministry. I'll say that again. It had become a business and not a ministry. Does that ring any bells with anybody? You know, we need to be so careful, don't we, that what we do is really glorifying to God and not actually causing a barrier in people's way as it was here. 
But the real tragedy, which you may not be aware of, the real tragedy about all of this was that this market took place in the court of the Gentiles. In the court of the Gentiles. That was the place in the temple where the Gentiles were allowed to go. And they should have been there seeking God, wanting to find out more about the true, the one true God. And there should have been good Jewish believers there sharing with them, helping them. Well, any Gentile searching for the truth wasn't going to be likely to find it in amongst all this merchandise and corruption and noisy animals, etc. We do notice Jesus was careful not to destroy anybody's property. He didn't release the doves, did he? It just says he told the people with the doves to get them out of here. One of the commentators says, the condition of the temple was a vivid indication of the spiritual condition of the nation. Their religion was a dull routine presided over by worldly-minded men whose main desire was to exercise authority and get rich. Not only had the wine run out at the wedding feast, but the glory had departed from the temple. Wow. Wow. I'm going to read you another short passage now from Luke. And it's so very different. Luke 21, verses 1 to 6. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she poor as she is, has given everything she has. Some of the disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on another. Not one stone will be left on another. This story is just in such contrast, isn't it, to the religiosity of what we've just read here in John 2 and where we find Jesus already prophesying the destruction of the very temple that they were so proud of. Apparently, Herod's temple was begun back in 20 BC and it wasn't actually fully completed until 64 AD, so a good 30 years after Jesus prophesied this would happen. And only six years after it was finished, the Romans came and just demolished the lot. Jesus' anger is holy because it comes out of a holy zeal and a passion for the things of God and God's honor and glory. He has a love for both Jews and Gentiles. And he makes it clear from the very beginning of his ministry that this is God's heart. Just two chapters on, I guess we'll come to this, chapter four, um, we see Jesus reaching out to the Samaritan woman at the well. He's showing very clearly that that salvation is not just for the Jews, but also for the whole world. But the second time that the disciples remember what Jesus has said 
is much later after Jesus' resurrection. And that's when they realize that Jesus has been talking all the time when he talks here about his, the temple being destroyed and, and rebuilt in three days, that he was talking about his own body and about his death and resurrection. He's pointing here to the fact that under the new covenant, God's temple is within each one of us. Hallelujah. I hear an amen there. It is within each one of us who believe in Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank God there is no longer any need to travel to a physical temple in Jerusalem, even though it's great to go and visit Israel. I'd encourage you if you have the chance. But we don't have to travel to a temple anymore. It's no, no longer there. Nor do we have to sacrifice innocent animals to keep on atoning for our sins because Jesus himself is our once-for-all sacrificial lamb. And so, as we already read in a previous week from John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So can you see why Jesus was so passionate and angry and just zealous for God's house, that it should be clear that people could come and meet with the one true God. And just those final verses, Jesus and human nature, those final few verses there where it just says, it's almost a bit cryptic really, you know, it says Jesus didn't trust them because no one needed to tell him about human nature. He knew what was in each person's heart. Um, we read here that um, many of them followed Jesus because of all the miraculous signs that they saw. Um, there must have been quite a few. They're not all described in the Gospels at all. But that seems to be what drew people, may have been what drew Nicodemus in the next chapter 3. But although people professed to believe in Jesus, he didn't believe or entrust himself to them because he knew what was in each person's heart. He knows what's in each of our hearts this morning. How does that make us feel? Scary? Maybe rebellious? <laughs> Maybe a bit hesitant to respond because we think, mm, you know, I'm not worthy. Not at all. We need to remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. So that means that he sees and knows our hearts better than we do ourselves. He's lived this earthly life and he's able to understand our weaknesses, our temptations and our failures at every level. He gets it when we're impatient, or selfish, or arrogant, or angry, without cause, or lazy, or insensitive, or we can add to the list ourselves, can't we? But the wonderful thing is that these sins and weaknesses of ours in no way stop us, stop you and me from coming to him. Hallelujah. No way. We just have to be honest and come to him and love him for who he is as well as what he does for us. Are we just fair-weather Christians, you know, fair-weather followers 
as evidently some of these people were in this chapter, that we, or will we follow him with or without the miracles? It's noticeable that although Jesus knew exactly what was in people's hearts, it didn't make him cynical. It didn't stop him loving them, teaching them, healing them, and eventually dying for them and for us on that cross. Because you see, Jesus is our great high priest. And I think it's said best, really, in Hebrews chapter 4, where we read this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings as we do, yet he did not sin. So let's come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is God's answer to our fallen human nature and also his longing to have a loving relationship with us. So just drawing this to a a close, really, I think we can actually choose whether our lives represent more of a party or a fight. (laughs) I don't know where you are right now with so many different circumstances here in this room. But you know what? We can actually choose that. It's not just dependent on our outward circumstances. It can be a celebration of God's grace and his generosity, or we can have a fight with him, with ourselves, and maybe those around us. We just need to come, don't we? And receive grace to help in time of need, to receive the forgiveness and to allow our lives to become that temple, that living temple with the Holy Spirit constantly at work inside us, constantly changing us. We need to let God speak to us and change us on a daily basis because he is always speaking. Amen? Always speaking. He's speaking through his word. He speaks to us through the words and the thoughts of others. He speaks through situations, through wise counsel, and he speaks to us through this amazing world that we live in. How many times have you perhaps been just looking at a beautiful scene out in nature and you just sense God speak deep into your heart? But he can also speak through the love of a person. He can speak through wise and encouraging and comforting words. And if we want to become more like this Jesus whom we serve, then we will, like him, also be open to the needs of those around us, won't we? We're not going to put barriers in the way like they did in the court of the Gentiles. We're going to want to share what we have with others through hospitality and giving and support of all kinds. So my prayer this morning really is that these two very different stories, a party and a fight, will just inspire me, inspire all of us really, to more generosity, more celebration of God's goodness in our everyday lives, that we'll stop putting limitations on what God might want to do in and around us because the miracles didn't die out with the New Testament. Yeah, God is still 
a miracle worker, a way maker. And may we just be inspired to really entrust ourselves wholly to God who will keep us to the very end. Amen? Amen. God bless. Thanks, Andrea.